I was thinking when I actually entered into, you know, the study this week and to write the, the, the teaching for tonight, that God doesn't have a face, which is strange, isn't it? And uh, it's strange because the Bible often uses the language of physicality to describe God, but it also teaches that God the Father, or what we would call the first person of the Trinity, is spirit, and thus he is without traditional physical form. Of course, we can't really make sense of that, not really, anyway. So we, and the authors of Scripture, and often God himself, will sort of pin to God more tactile terms for us to wrap our heads around. So we use human attributes at times, or what we call anthropomorphisms. We say that God has a face, or that he has a nose, you know, he blows uh, fire out of his snout and things like that. He has arms and feet. Or we use animal terms sometimes, which is called a zoomorphism, that God has wings, or God is like a lion, he roars, or he's like a lamb. Sometimes we even use elemental terms to describe God. He's like a fire, he's like an ocean, he's like the wind. Uh, of course, you and I tend to have our own mental pictures of God, and they're largely human by nature. Uh, this image from the Sistine Chapel acts as a good example of how I have it at times in my life imagined God's perpetually angry face. Um, and of course, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish rabbi, had his own ideas about God, what God is like, his disposition toward us and toward the world, his face, so to speak. So with all that in mind, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, which is Matthew chapter seven, the Sermon on the Mount. Over the span of what has now been many, many Sundays, we've been unpacking Jesus' most famous and essential collections of teachings. Uh, like I said, the Sermon on the Mount. We had to get a bit creative with the order uh, of things during the holidays, but in January, our friend Bethany Allen unpacked the passage that immediately precedes our text tonight. It had to do with judgment, you know, this whole thing about don't judge or you will be judged. Remove the plank from your own eye. You guys remember that? Were you around? Well, if you don't, go back and listen to the podcast. That's what it's there for. My point is that um, we've been taking our time. We've been doing the hard work of unpacking these beautifully complex and challenging and subversive teachings of Jesus, our master. And this collection is not just an arbitrary place where the biographer Matthew sort of had no better place to collect teachings, so he opted to string together a series of commands right in the middle of the book. Um, this is much more than that. This is actually Jesus' manifesto for life in what he called the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is all about a way of life that every would-be follower of Jesus is to ascribe to and to live out. It's not a set of impossible ideals. It's not a burdensome load of tedious requirements. This is a new way to be a human being. And this is the key to freedom, Jesus believed. Freedom from hatred and violence and lust and greed and animosity and pretense and worry. All the things that so entangle each and every one of us broken and flawed human beings. And as the sermon unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that every single thing Jesus addresses has to do with living in right relationships. Anger, violence, lust, envy, pretense, worry, prayer, it all has to do that we with the way that we relate to one another as people, but it also has to do with how we relate to God. So let's read from Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. You guys there? You ready? Santino, how you doing, man? <laughs> I, I honestly meant to just say hello to you, but when I caught your face, it was going in another direction, so I horrified him. 
thought that I was calling on him just to embarrass him. It was just to say hello. It's good to see your smiling visage. Anyway, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. I swear I won't embarrass anyone else. Or I don't know, not on purpose anyway. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, something to eat, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? When you read Jesus' teaching, remember that he isn't some lone Zen master with an unprecedented set of beliefs. Jesus was actually a Jewish rabbi. He belonged to a people. He belonged to a story, a tradition. Jesus had an incredibly high view of the Bible, and he was shaped by ancient Jewish wisdom for understanding the relational dynamics of God. So this teaching of his is actually consistent with the stories by which he has been formed as a Jewish rabbi. Look at this from Proverbs. It says, God says, I love those who love me and those who seek me, find me. That language sounds familiar. Or this from Jeremiah 29. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh. The authors of the Old Testament understood that God's people can and should and actually will call on God and that God will answer that call. And in tonight's text, Jesus uses similarly bold language that although it's consistent with the bold language of the Old Testament, it is for us problematic, isn't it? You know, after all, if we take Jesus at simple, literalistic face value, does, does it actually seem to be the case that everyone who asks receives, that the one who knocks uh, the door is opened in front of them, the one who seeks finds? Or, or an easier way of putting it is how, how many of you have asked and not received? How many of you have asked for good things, not selfish or ambitious or immature and not received? The healing of a loved one, the, the preservation of a marriage, the reconciliation of some relationship, you asked and you did not receive. Later in this actual story, this book in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself will face this reality in a profound way. Look at this from Matthew 26. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and Jesus prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In this case, the cup Jesus is talking about refers to his torturous and humiliating public execution as an enemy of the state. And in the story, is that cup taken from Jesus? No. And it's not as though Jesus was only now at this point later in the book learning that some prayers go unanswered. Elsewhere in the story, Jesus' own disciples want to do incredible things, good things, and they want to be empowered by God, and they fall short. Peter wants to walk on water, if you know the story. He's empowered by Jesus, at least for a moment, and then he sinks. The disciples attempt to drive a demon out of a small boy, and they can't do it. Jesus was aware of, and he had confronted the phenomenon of asking for good things and getting no answer. And he'd seen doubt. He'd seen disappointment. 
It isn't as though Jesus suddenly forgot all this when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He's up to something very specific. So let's get to that before we work on some of the complications in the text. This teaching is, I think, if any of us were to ask ourselves or explore it a little bit mentally, we could agree that it's, it's not a promise of metaphysical certainty, that every request will be granted in the specific sense, because Jesus knew that that didn't happen, not even for him. But Jesus found himself before an audience made up of people who wondered, much as you and I do, is God listening? Does God care? Will he even hear me if I talk? And to this question, Jesus answers with a powerful and resounding, yes, God is listening. Yes, he cares. Yes, he will hear you. And more than that, he wants to listen. He wants to hear you. He wants to provide for you and care for you and even present you with what Jesus calls good gifts. And Jesus anchors that claim in God's goodness. How can you believe all this is true? Because God's character is inherently and always good. So it's not unlike Jesus' teaching on worry. Jesus is saying, this is true. You can believe this because your Father in heaven is always good. Jesus isn't selling a sort of genie in the sky paradigm where you ask for stuff and you always get stuff. He's combating a false picture of God with an emphatic, oh yes, he really is that good. Of course, Jesus' illustration of a good parent and their child is a helpful one. You know, on my best day, by the grace of God, I'm an okay dad. If my son were ever hesitant to ask me anything in the world or ask me for anything in the world, I would be grieved by this. I would be deeply grieved by this. So if I've ever felt that this was the concern, he's shown a little reticence in asking me for something or asking me about something, whatever it is, I've combated that misunderstanding by saying things like, hey, listen, you can ask me anything. I always want to hear from you. I always want to know what you need, and I will always do my best to get you everything you need, and then some. Now, does that mean that I will always grant every immediate request with exact specificity? Of course not. I couldn't even if I wanted to. Believe me, there's this whole thing that's been going on for weeks with this Jurassic World toy that's you know on eBay for like $75 every single day with the Jurassic World toy. Hey, have you thought any more about the Jurassic World toy? Listen, it's just not going to happen. I can't. You got to give me some time. Maybe wait till Christmas. It's a long way. It's a whole thing. The point is, no, he doesn't get everything, everything he asks, he doesn't get everything he asks for. But really, which is more important? For my four-year-old to understand that the reasons for which I can't always grant his requests are numerous and complicated and often beyond his understanding, or is it more important for him to understand that his dad loves him and his dad listens to him and he wants to hear from him and that my general disposition toward him is to provide and to give and to answer when he calls on me? And the power of the illustration is actually in the contrast. Uh, why? Because... If an imperfect human dad wants to listen and wants to answer and wants to give, then we can and should expect so much more from our Father in heaven because God is both better than us and unlike us, he's always altogether good. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight puts it like this. My experience teaches me that it's easier to make Christians feel guilty about their lack of prayer life than it is to motivate them to become more active in prayer. The former, guilt, rarely produces the latter, act of prayer. Jesus' words in this text may be the most insightful words in the entire Bible on how to motivate people to pray. Instead of using guilt to motivate, we need to cast a compelling vision of the goodness of our Father. 
knowing God's love, knowing God's goodness, and learning to embrace those attributes of God prompts us to pray. God delights in our presence and delights in sharing his presence with us. And notice in Jesus' teaching that there's like qualifying language in verse 11. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So if you know anything about the story of the scriptures, who knows what is good? This is the easiest question in all of Bible trivia. Who knows what is good in the Bible? God, thanks, man. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a hard night. Who famously blurs and misunderstands or intentionally distorts and maligns the distinction between good and not good in the Bible? Yeah, okay, all right, yeah, you guys are, you're, okay, you're, you're with me. So when Jesus assures his disciples that God intends to and will give good gifts to those who ask, do you think that he's assuming our standard of good or God's standard of good? God's, great, okay, yeah, we're back, we're, we're back in action. Now, of course, from the outset, this can seem like a sort of lazy way to simply sweep every unanswered prayer under the rug of God's mysterious goodness, as if every time our prayers returned void, it was because they just weren't good prayers. That wasn't a good thing that God wanted to give you. But it doesn't take a scholar to unravel the holes in that logic. Uh, Have you ever prayed for someone dying of terminal illness? Or have you prayed for someone to be set free from the bondage of addiction? Or have you prayed for someone to come to faith uh, and leave a life of death behind? Those are all really good prayers, any way you slice it. Those are good things to ask for, and they would be good gifts to receive, a person being healed, a person being freed from addiction, a person coming to faith in Jesus, and yet we can all readily admit that they are not always answered, those prayers. But there are other reasons a prayer for something sincerely good might go unanswered. Um, We don't have time to get into all of them tonight, and we've done it really elaborately elsewhere, but it could be that the case is that God has designed the universe to be free and things happen in the universe that thwart our prayers. After all, you've heard me say many times now that we don't believe advance any that God governs the universe with unilateral control, meaning not everything that happens is planned or ordained or willed by God. You've been given a say. So have I, unfortunately. So have spiritual beings or what we would call angels and demons. And as a result, we often reject God's good and the entire creation has been distorted and broken as a result of those choices. Now even nature or even the chaos of circumstances have a say in what happens. And this is important to understand when you confront this teaching of Jesus because knowing all this, Jesus continues to insist that his disciples ask. It's not as if this was news to him. He knew that there were reasons that your prayers might go unanswered and yet he insists that his disciples ask. Jesus isn't proposing a sort of carte blanche approach to asking God for things. The point here is not metaphysical certainty that you will always get what you ask for. The point is that Jesus' disciples are to learn and understand and believe and trust in their Father's goodness. We actually have language for this type of thing in modern English. Uh, Earlier this week, I was having breakfast with some friends when one of them observed the way uh, a nearby father was treating his small daughter to breakfast. And in a world where to walk out the door and behold, you know, humans in public, about nine out of 10 parents you see are engrossed in a smartphone while neglecting their children altogether. We were so encouraged to see this dad. There was no phone in sight and he was just lavishing attention 
on his young daughter, and they were having a great time, it looked like. And one of my friends mentioned uh, that this sort of thing reminded her of her own dad, who had been a good dad, apparently. And she described him with this expression. She said, oh, my dad would do anything for me. And of course, when we hear that expression, we know in an instant what she means, that hers is a good dad, that he cared for her to the degree that he has gone above and beyond to do good for her in her life. No one would understand her to be saying that her dad would literally do anything for her, because of course, if he's a remotely healthy or sane person, there are certainly things he simply cannot or would not do where he asks. Some of those things, or some of the reasons will be for her own good, presumably, and others for other reasons altogether, but that's not the point. The point is that her dad is good. She can count on him. He's trustworthy. She has learned to expect that he will do good for her and that she can call on him, that she can ask for things. So she says, oh, my dad would do anything for me. And she doesn't withdraw that statement when and if there comes a time in which she's asked, uh, she asks for something and that request is not granted because she's learned to trust in her dad's character and in his goodness. Now, I realize the, you know, the parent-child analogy is complicated for some of us. Some of us did not have good parents, or other of us, uh, others of us are aware of our own shortcomings as parents ourselves. The point here is that not that all human parents are at least decent. Uh, many are not, we know that. Nor is the point that even our best efforts as parents are evil. You know, Jesus used such a harsh language. He's like, even you, though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts. The point is that not that even the best parents are evil. The idea is that even our wildest notion of truly good parents cannot compare to the limitless goodness of our Father in heaven. You know, often in our journey with prayer, it seems to me we tend to fall into two temptations, either respectively or concurrently. The first is the temptation of self-sufficiency, and this one is as subtle as it is sinister because few of us would actually claim to believe that we get everything done without God's help, but a great many of us assume this and live as though it were true because life happens and you just sort of ignore God or we don't talk to him, we don't seek his presence, we don't offer him ours, we don't ask or seek or knock, we just sort of go at ourselves. And the second temptation is connected to the first, and it is to assume that God doesn't care, the temptation of disbelief. We assume innately that God may care about big things, but he can't be bothered with what we assume to be little things. So we'll worry about those ourselves. Or in the chaos of life, maybe big moments come along, but we hardly remember God at all, and we simply deal with things without him. In all of this, we are assuming, either consciously or subconsciously, that God doesn't care, or that he doesn't hear us, or that praying would make absolutely no difference. And Jesus is, with beautifully pastoral language, combating both of those temptations. He's saying, yes, you should ask, you should seek, you should knock, because you are not self-sufficient. You need God. And lucky for you, because God is good. He actually answers. He wants to answer you. Look at this from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He said, I think sometimes our failure to believe such promises and to act on them doesn't come so much from a failure of faith in God, but from a natural human reluctance. If pressed, they might say it was selfish or that God had better things to do with his time than to provide whatever they happened to want 
Well, that may or may not be true, but it would be a shame to tone down one of the most sparkling and generous sets of promises anywhere in the Bible. Maybe it isn't selfish to ask for things. Maybe it's just a natural thing that children are supposed to do with parents. Maybe our refusal to do so makes God sad or puzzled. Why aren't his children telling him how it is for them, what they'd like him to do for them? Interestingly, this passage is not the first time that Jesus has formally addressed the practice of prayer, even in the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier in chapter 6, Jesus, if you recall, he warns against the kind of prayer that's done to impress people rather than to actually communicate with God. And he follows that prohibition against the wrong way to pray, pray with the right way to pray, the famous prayer template. You know, the one, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. Jesus has been consistently teaching his disciples to understand God, the infinite, omnipotent creator of the universe, as a loving Father. So prayer, then, is a means by which we live in relationship with the Father. There's no need for pretense or for posturing or for babbling or for fear or for reticence. Just live and talk with your father because he's good. He loves you like a good dad would. He's always as close as the air on your skin. He cares about you. He cares about the little things. Praying is one of the ways you know and understand him and learn to want what he wants. But then here in chapter 7, Jesus enriches this paradigm of God and of prayer by casting this beautiful vision of just how wide a permission we have to approach our Father with requests, with asks. And Jesus doesn't just mention this in passing. He says it three different ways, and then he repeats himself. I think one clear indication as to why Jesus is so heavy-handed with such an incredible promise is because we tend to doubt that it's true. So he has to say it again and again and again. Look at the way scholar Dale Bruner describes this issue. He wrote, the irony is that we carry around heavy bundles of wishes that never become askings. We talk to ourselves about our problems in the form of much thought, worry, and sleeplessness. We might talk about our problem with those close to us too, but even we Christians are strangely reluctant to talk about our problems with the Father. Here Jesus opens the doors of faith as widely as they will ever be opened again and promises a fruitful audience with the Father for the simple asking. When you read through the four biographies of Jesus' life, what we call the Gospels, you begin to see this consistent source of Jesus' discouragement in his life and in his work when he confronts a lack of faith. Like I said earlier, Peter wants to walk on water, which is a weird thing, but hey, if you could do it, why not? He wants to walk on water, but he can't because he has a lack of faith. The disciples want to drive out a demon, but they can't because of a lack of faith. His disciples worry about food and about clothes because of a lack of faith. And he has this expression that he uses, oh, you of little faith. And Jesus teaches as a person that is desperate to impress upon his listeners the tremendous urgency of simply asking, will there inevitably be someone who abuses this teaching? Of course, just as easily as I could turn to my friend and say, well, your dad wouldn't really do anything for you. Would he do this? Would he do this? And she would have to say, well, no, that's not what I meant. And that not only misses the point, it distracts us from something as beautiful as it is crucial. The problem for most of us, if I had to guess, and knowing the conversations that I've had with a lot of you guys, the problem for most of us has less to do with misinterpreting Jesus' words as a literal promise 
that everything we could ever ask for will be granted just like that. If we do this, or if we live like this or assume this, you distort God into an impersonal, non-relational vending machine, and this is, is a heinous wrongdoing, and it does happen. But more often, I think the problem for most of us is that we do not ask in the first place, let alone assume we're going to get what we ask for. Later, one New Testament author puts it very bluntly and says this, you desire, but you do not have. So you kill. It's the source of tremendous sin. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You can't get along because of it. But listen to this. You do not have because you do not ask God. Cause and effect. Of course, there are varied reasons for our lack of asking, and some of them are understandable or legitimate. We've been hurt by unanswered prayer. We've gone through something tragic, and we've suffered as a result. Uh, Maybe we're just distracted or over busy. We're not sure how to ask sometimes, frankly. But all of these things, whether we're prepared to admit to them or not, are rooted in a flawed portrait of who God is. Because when you live out of these presuppositions, you are assuming that God doesn't care that he ignores you, that he can't hear you, or that he won't answer, or that he's far away, or that he's aloof, or uninterested, or unknowable, and that he won't change things on your behalf. And listen to me when I say this, every one of those things is a lie. Look at this, uh, perhaps my favorite quote from Dallas Willard. He writes, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. So tonight, I want to pose a haunting question for your consideration. Think back to that story about my friend and the observation she made about her dad. And I want you to think about those words. My father would do anything for me. And don't think about them in the simplistic, literal sense, but in the heartfelt way that this expression is always used in conversation. Ask yourself, Can I say this of God and believe it? And Jesus comes not to simply present spiritual disciplines and practices and methods of apprenticeship. He does all that, absolutely. But he also offers to his students, to his apprentices, his disciples, a picture of what God is truly like, which is mind-blowing. He does this because, listen, otherwise we wouldn't know. Not in the fullest sense. Without Jesus, we would not know. Not really. The scriptures say that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, that Jesus is the truest revelation of God's very essence. Because of Jesus, we know for sure what God is really like. But like all of Jesus' teachings, there are choices to make. Again and again, day after day, little choices that become patterns of thought and ways of life. It doesn't just happen all at once. You have to choose to embrace this, choose to believe it decision by decision until it becomes a paradigm for you in your life. So you have to ask yourself, will you, to, will you choose to believe again and again, decision by decision, prayer by prayer, ask by ask, 
that God is actually good. Your image of God, everything that comes to mind, both consciously and subconsciously, when you think about God, it will shape the way that you pray for better or for worse. Your image of God can create a robust life of prayer or it can destroy your prayer life altogether. Greg Boyd puts it like this. The way you imagine God is the single most important factor in your life. For our relationship with God is mediated through our mental images of him. How we imagine God thus determines the sort of relationship you have with him and the sort of difference this relationship will make in your life. If we embrace an untrustworthy mental picture of God, we cannot enter into a life-giving relationship with him. Everything God created us to be depends on the beauty and accuracy of your mental picture of God. Or consider this a little more down to earth from John Tyson. Unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. If you're bored with God, you may be the person who's boring. <laughs> or it could be that you're just distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn to the glory of who God really is. And this is what I'm getting at. If in your mind, either consciously or slightly less so, God is an angry, dissatisfied, or aloof dad, preemptively disappointed, retributive, frustrated with you, unconcerned, uncaring, well then who, who would want to pray to that God? If God is far away and unfathomable and shrouded in stoic mystery, then who can figure out how to pray to that God? But what if God is a kind, generous, affectionate, gentle, caring, compassionate, and forgiving father? Uh, last year, I was admiring a painting inspired by one of Jesus' parables called The Prodigal Son. And in it, uh, as in Jesus' parable, God is depicted as this enamored dad who is wrapping a wayward child up in his loving embrace. It's beautiful, I looked at it, and as I looked at it, I found the slightest flicker of cynicism in the back of my consciousness. I thought, man, that, if only that were true. And I felt God in the moment rebuke me <laughs> for my thought. And he asked, well, who, who will you trust? Will you trust your own distorted pictures of me, or will you believe what I say about myself is true? And he drew my attention to this piece once again, and he said to me, as funny as it sounds, he said, that's me, and that's you. And you just have to accept it, as uncomfortable and unbelievable as that is. That's me, and that's you. For many of us, I think that this will require a radical paradigm shift in both ways, thought patterns that we're aware of and ones that we're not aware of at all yet. It won't come all at once, it'll take work over time, but lucky for us, we have a teacher. Jesus understood this, so he provided for his disciples practices to reform and reshape their minds and their hearts, prayer and spiritual disciplines, and frankly, just the simple asking is part of that process. Ask, he says, seek, knock, see what happens. You won't find on the other side a cosmic vending machine that'll give you everything you ask for in an instant. You won't find a heavenly Santa Claus, but nor will you find an angry, annoyed, or uncaring deity. You will find the Father, a loving Father. He gives good gifts to those who ask him. 
Jesus understood that the greatest gift available to his students was to know and to be known by God. So with all that in mind, I'd love to just pray for you guys, invite God's spirit to come and to speak.